Hello, welcome to Reclaiming the City in Korea, a podcast miniseries from the Nam Center for Korean Studies at the University of Michigan. My name is Simi Oh. In this miniseries, we'll feature the Nam Center's Artist Residency Program, which showcases Korean arts across all disciplines through famous activists, dancers, architects, sculptors, playwrights, and more. This podcast is co-produced with Francisco Sanim in anticipation of the Perspectives and Contemporary Korea Conference scheduled for November 12 to 13, 2021. Our guest, Juhi Judy Han, is an assistant professor in gender studies at UCLA and has a PhD in geography from UC Berkeley. She writes and draws comics about a range of topics in transnational Korean studies, from Korean Christian missions and megachurches in Seoul to queer activism and protest cultures, all the while raising questions about mobilities, relations, and space. She's working on a book manuscript currently titled Queer Through Lines, Korea Diaspora Activism. Welcome, Judy, to our podcast series. Judy, it's great to have you here. We're very excited. We have followed your trajectory and, you know, the introduction begins to only skim all the multiple venues that your work has taken. But I understand that in one of your most recent projects is looking at pride events in Seoul and understanding the kind of spatial manifestation and how that is become somehow paradigmatic of, of a structural issues in society. So I was wondering if you'd like to Tell us a little bit more about it and in a way how all this work has led you to focus on this at this point in your career. Thank you. Thank you for that question. And just to give you a little bit of a background, just based on the introduction that Semi provided, my training is in geography, is in cultural geography. And my first project was actually not about queer politics, but having been an out queer activist before graduate school, I think even as I was doing research on conservative religious formations, I've also participated in other ways in these not so conservative, not so Christian, not so evangelical spaces that had to do with progressive queer spaces. So once I set aside or at least put on the back burner some of my projects on conservative religious formations, I was able to turn my attention back to the more progressive, contentious politics that actually had been a pretty consistent interest and commitment on my part. When I started working on this bigger project on protest culture, the LGBTQ pride events in Seoul, Korea posed an interesting challenge because they're really nothing like other protest spaces that are convened in Korea. They're not even really protest spaces, really. And to be honest, having lived in North America since the age of 12, I I don't go to Pride anymore. In North America, Pride in big cities are usually, I mean, these days, at least in 2021, my impression had for a long time been that they are very commercialized. They're just completely full of corporate sponsors. They have lost their political edge. It's usually in the summer, so it's hot, it's very crowded, all kinds of sort of bodily comfort, uh, discomfort, as well as the the political tone of it never really, they haven't really appealed to me in the North American context. In South Korea, though, the, what began as 
in some ways, a replica or, a, you know, a similar kind of effort of the Pride events in North America took on a very, like, have taken a very different kind of trajectory. They began very small, as you can imagine, almost 20 years ago, over 20 years ago now, with just dozens of protesters or Pride participants covering their faces, you know, making sure that the journalists didn't photograph folks whose faces needed to be concealed for protection of identity and whatnot. Um, there were all kinds of privacy concerns. So even for a project that's designed, like the, you know, the pride space, even for something that's designed to increase visibility, there was always this negotiation with remaining concealed and, and not so visible. So it's been, yeah, really interesting dynamic, just that aspect of it. But come 2015, they moved to Seoul. Seoul Square. I mean, they've always been in Seoul, but they moved to Seoul Gwangjang. I think in English, it's technically Seoul Plaza, not the Seoul Square. Seoul Plaza, the round, the grassy area right in front of the city hall. It can't be more symbolic in terms of reclaiming the center of the city in front of the city hall to hold an event that's just as legitimate as any other mega events, including political events, but mega events that are that range, you know. So one joke is that if you can hold a rally in that Seoul Plaza these days, you should be comparable to like a kimchi festival. If anything can happen in that square, why can it not be a religious rally, a political rally, a queer pride event, etc.? And so their right to sort of, you know, even hold the LGBTQ pride events to take place in that that space is in, in itself uh, meaningful. But of course, what's also been really interesting is how they've unfolded since then. So the protest cultures was really the, the project, the larger project. And so I'm actually co-writing another book with Jennifer Chun, who's a labor social sociologist and we're collaborating on this project to look at protests, you know, big and small, short and long. Like there are all kinds of protests that, that interest us for various reasons. So but pride events are sort of not part of that, not necessarily. So in some ways this was already an anomaly to think of in that context of contentious contentious politics. And so now this is this is this is actually part of my other project that I'm doing separately on queer and queer Korean and diasporic political spaces. You have a very interesting concept called queer thorough lines. Would you mind elaborating on what that means? The idea is that this is a line that runs through, that connects, that, you know, that motivates, that animates a certain continuity, a certain consistency of looking at things, of acting on things, of, of shaping things. So it's a real line. I mean, it's kind of an inter- a funny process because when I actually... One of one thing that I struggled the most with this book manuscript in some ways is actually to come up with a through line that connected the different pieces. And then I realized that actually the through line itself is what I'm talking about. The fact that these are wayward lines, that these are contingent lines of connection. And I'm actually writing about this desire to to breach the line, to redraw the line, and that we also seem to play with the line. We love the line in many ways because they they give us the confidence and security and a sense of belonging, but that we're also constantly pushing the the fragility of the line in order to reshape them and to bend them. So that sounds abstract. That sounds conceptual, the the line, but it, it really materializes concretely when you think about the police line that surrounds the pride events. And to clarify, I call it pride. A lot of people call it pride, but the, technically the name of the event is Korea Queer Culture Festival. It used to be called Korea Queer Culture Festival. And three years ago, they actually changed their name to Seoul Queer Culture Festival in order to 
acknowledge and encourage other regional queer culture festival events that have now uh, started to take place in, in Daegu, in Jeju, in Gwangju, in Incheon. Etc. So the Seoul Plaza space. Picture the round, the huge, you know, grassy area in front of the Seoul City Hall. It, it has symbolic importance. It has geographical, you know, cent- centrality going for it. Folks are gathering to celebrate pride, to celebrate political space, to celebrate each other. It's a festive event. But right outside the space of LGBTQ community gathering. There is also a space of anti-queer, very loud and outspoken protesters against LGBTQ pride. So we're talking about conservative, mostly Christian folks who've come out specifically to oppose this from taking place. Their objection actually almost always also has includes questions around like, should this be visible? Should this be public? Should this be uh, public to our children? Should this take place in the middle of the city? So these are the kinds of questions that they raise about LGBTQ pride taking place in this particular space. The police line at some point became instituted as a way to protect the participants of the Korea Queer Culture Festival. They needed to be protected. Otherwise, the protesters would be all over everything. I mean, they have known to do all kinds of horrible things like throwing excrement at participants on stage. They, the spaces, even now, they've actually, I mean, the last time I went was a now, well, it's been a while now, three years ago, but the it's, it's extremely loud. Uh, they're shouting epithets. They're singing Christian hymns as if there's some sort of attack songs. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's in many ways an incredibly violent space. So the police line and the fence that got erected uh, around the perimeter of the Seoul Plaza gave the participants inside some peace of mind and comfort. But the first time that police got that police line got set up, they circumscribed the, the entire space and then they left an opening for entrance and you know exit. And they left it up to the organizers to determine who should be let in. So imagine 50,000 people in a crowded city street and there is an opening. So imagine any sort of a mega event situation where there is no ticketing. So there is, it's not like you can actually flash something and be admitted, but it literally became the job of the few activists in charge of the entrance to determine on the fly who is likely to be queer and an ally and who is likely not to be one of us, but an infiltrator who will do something if they gain entrance. I think for the most part, it was not too hard, <laughs> to be honest. I think, you know, 90% of the time, these distinctions could be made visually by, what, you know, looking at what they're wearing, what kind of stickers they're, you know, they have put on their bodies, what they're carrying, etc. I have heard that there were some interesting moments that caught the activists back a little bit. And it, it, it gave them, and, and this is the moment that I, I find really interesting, it gave people something to think about, about policing that line of community and belonging, especially because they were participating and enforcing a police line, literally. I think this was a really interesting moment in both queer politics in Korea, as well as the management of this kind of political space in the urban political context. That's really fascinating. And you talk about the police line as a special metaphor for what you describe as intersubjective encounter. And I can imagine that line can physically separate protesters from anti-protesters and draw the visual boundary. But the kind of soundscape that you describe, the anti-protesters shouting 
chanting and singing hymns. And I actually heard the, actually saw the video that you posted on your online article. Would you mind talking a little bit more about how the soundscape kind of overlaps or transgresses the police line that you described? The, the police line, we're talking metal, we're talking human bodies, we're talking, you know, just like any, if you, if you picture police badges and batons, we're talking about hard objects. These are material barriers that are symbolic. Yes, the police line is symbolic, but it's also, it's it's tangible. It's it's literally their material. But the experience of that space can't be explained in terms of only the, the, the physical objects that structure that space. As I mentioned, the sound, the soundscape, the the incredible, the oral assault. I, I can't downplay how incredibly affective that space of friction is, that space of contestation. But an interesting experience, even with that kind of soundscape where, you know, you have basically sound stages competing with one another, right? You have the, the Christian hymns blaring, and then you have the Korea Kur, uh, culture festival folks raising the volume to, to compete with them. I think the first time the Christian protesters organized this counter rally, they had better sound equipment or they had amazingly great sound equipment, which is also not surprising if you think about mega events and mega churches. This is also where like this kind of infrastructure of audio video like equipment becomes very much part of protest landscape. But they kind of outdid the Korea Queer Culture Festival. So of course the next year, you know, more money went into budgeting for better sound equipment. So it's this so they're just getting louder and louder because they need to compete with one another. On top of it, there's a march which exposes the carefully contained space more openings to interact with one another because a march can't be contained exactly like the way a, a circle can be contained. At the beginning of this march, I was marching with this contingent called Rainbow Jesus, or in Korean, Rainbow Yesu, which was an interdenominational Christian formation and allies marching together to be part of this march of LGBTQ Korean World Culture Festival. So we start marching and right off, we encounter the Christian protesters who are right outside the perimeter, right? So, you know, the, the circle opens, if you can imagine this spatially, the circle opens, we start like kind of oozing out, right? As a contingent that's about to start the march. And then immediately we're confronted with the counter protesters who are right outside the margin and they start singing Christian hymns. But there was this moment where the contingent, like everybody around me, including myself. I haven't gone to church in I don't know how long, but old Christian songs that you grew up singing, familiar Christian hymns that you can sing in your sleep. When the counter-protesters, when the anti-queer protesters started singing these songs at us, I think there was this moment of collective realization that we know these songs. They can't use this against us. Just without planning at the moment, people started singing along to the songs that were meant to harm us. So in many ways, this is, you know, it's in similar to the whole the use of the word queer, how it was taken back from being used as an epithet to a word that actually affirms who we are and what our politics are about. In, in many ways, it was that kind of process of reclamation. But I think in some ways it was it was also for me a reminder that the line itself is a space of these kinds of thrown togetherness, as geographer Doreen Massey would say, mixture of voices, of sounds, of interests, of conflicts. And in many ways, this is also precisely what queer politics has been like. It's always been mixed with hostilities, antipathies, with opposition, 
And it's in this process of sorting through the, you know, these lines of belonging that queer politics and the diaspora have also emerged. I think in in some ways, the kind of a common thread, which I suppose is also a line, is that the line itself is a space. I think we often think of the line as a spaceless space, as a kind of a non-place that divides one space, one space from, uh, from another. Um, but as we know from being able to zoom into anything, from, you know, from taking a close look at anything, and even ethnographically, when you experience the, the border, when you ex- experience the, the boundary, even the experience of the hyphen, I feel like can be exposed and explored and theorized as, as space, as lived space even. In that sense, I think the kind of the DMZ the demilitarization, you know, the, the demarcation of national borders. I think there are ideological lines. I think there are other kinds of lines that are seen as serving the purpose of division, but in fact are also lived as a space. There are also other kinds of lines that connect the idea of lineage, the idea of the diaspora somehow, you know, connected to the homeland through various networks of that, you know, transnational networks are also lines in, in many ways. Another kind of line that I'm that I'm thinking of are, of course, solidarity lines, associational ties of kinship, affective ties that, that also bring us together. So I think as much as we talk about ties, we don't necessarily think about the space of those ties. As much as we think about the lines and borders and boundaries, I'm interested in paying super close attention to what takes place exactly in some of those places that we describe as liminal spaces. As an architect, that probably the very initial moment of architectural presence, right? Here and there, the obstruction, the limit. There was this project by an architect in Israel that took the line that the bureaucrats drew on the map, right, to separate, and they start blowing it up again. And they discover that if they do it at scale, the trace of the of the pen, right, the thickness of the line of the pen was actually about three meters at real scale. So they did a project where you could occupy those three meters across the entire divide between Israel and Palestine. So in a way, the, the line was embodied line. Right? It became an occupiable line. It was just a fantastic sort of twist of taking the materiality of the line drawn on a map. There's a, an anthropologist named Tim Ingold who's written a couple of books all about lines. Obviously, in architecture, in any sort of like historical, like urban formation mapping, but also comics too. If you think about drawing and drawing lines, for me, lines also offer a way of, you know, expressing storylines. The last thing I'll say about another kind of line is that the organizers of Korea Queer Culture Festival, or now renamed as Seoul Queer Culture Festival, they have to line up at the police station about a week. And, and I think it's exactly seven days before the event date. The city changed the system from a permit-based system or permission-based system to a registration-based system. So the city cannot deny permission within a certain set of criteria, but it is first come, first serve, and it's by registration, which means when the LGBTQ activists announce the date for that year's Soul Queer Culture Festival, they have to make sure to show up like at midnight and start lining up to register for that space. And the opposition, the anti-queer activists are also organized and they also have their sources. So sometimes you actually see people standing in line for several days 
getting to know each other so that they're actually trying to get to the front of the line eventually in contestation. There have been cases where, you know, for instance, the queer activist in line to hold that spot is talking with someone who was sent to save that space in line. And like in the course of the conversation, funny things happen. The anti-queer protester not knowing that the person that they're talking to is actually a queer person. The line itself becomes this really kind of interesting base of encounter. Thank you for sharing your exciting and interesting project today. Thanks for inviting me. And yeah, I look forward to the conference in November too. Thank you for listening to the final episode of Reclaiming the City in Korea. If you enjoyed this conversation, please check out our mini-series available on all podcasting platforms. Both podcasts from the series feature visual presentation available on our website. You can also find more information about our conference on the website. If you're interested in more NAM Center programming, please visit our Facebook page at NAM Center. I want to thank Juhi Judy Han for being our guest in today's episode. Earl Bay of the University of Michigan Soul Juice for our theme song and David Merchant for IT support. This podcast was co-produced by myself, Francisco Sinin, Erica Irvin, and Kate Clem and edited by Heather Duval. This work is supported by the Core University Program for Korean Studies through the Ministry of Education of the Republic of Korea and Korean Studies Promotion Service of the Academy of Korean Studies.